Hi, this is Jay Todd Anderson, and you are listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. tell by the music alone that something exciting this way comes it simply must be another edition of filmically perfect on 91.3 wyso i'm your host nikki dakota joined in the studio this day by the one the only storyboard artist to all the big stars friend of the coen brothers and friend of our show he's j todd anderson j todd welcome nikki secret dakota ring i'm always glad to be here thank you very much <laughs> we have a special purpose today and it also includes our friend our man at the Library of Congress, the man with the largest frame brain this side of any equator, and also the nitrate film archivist at the Library of Congress. He is friend and George Willeman. George, welcome. I am ready for my close-up. <laughs> Which is man, a clue. <laughs> any solar flash you see may be George talking about movies. <laughs> and boy, do we have a movie within a movie wrapped in an enigma Ooh, inside of a paradox. We've got a really... Great one today, and that movie, gentlemen, is Sunset Blood Boulevard. <laughs> Sorry, I guess it was written both ways. And a couple, one, yes. the original title was the uh, the truncation, and then yeah. And actually, I believe in the film when you see, I mean, the opening title shows the street marker on the curb and begins to pull back. I think it says Sunset BLBD. Oh, that may be why then, the why reason for it. But this is a movie starring. Movie stars uh, of past, yes. present, in some ways, and future. And BLV yeah. uh, uh, in this studio means bloviate, and that's what we do. <laughs> we talk about movies. <laughs> I like it. Filmically perfect. Bloviate. Bloviate's Bloviated. about movies. Right, exactly. Boulevard by two phonies at the mic that bloviate. It works, though. I tell you, um, I saw this movie years and years and years ago, and I'm so pleased to have seen it with the the new parameters, the new perspective that has been given me by the film guys. What what a richness is present here. Well, that that's the great thing about this film is that it works on two diametrically different levels, but it works very well. I mean, one, it's a great story. It's melodramatic. It's wacky. It's it's amazing. But if you know film and you know film history and you know how the film world works, it adds a whole complete other, even creepier layer yeah. to the whole story. This thing uh, captures its period because they dropped so many names that are in the mm-hmm. business at the time of the making of this film, which is 1950. 1950 is when it came out. Yes. And uh, you hear all them talk about, you know, Owen Wood and, you know, and all that stuff. And this is where the movie business is at their extreme high watermark, I think, because at that time, that was when the movie motion picture companies were still motion picture companies. And that was the biggest commodity for them was motion pictures. It wasn't everything else. Mm-hmm. And, and this is... At, at the highest arc, I think, in their business, don't you think? Well, yeah, because television was on the horizon. I mean, there had been, like, regular network broadcasting for, I don't know, three years or something like that. But it was, at that point, it was still, like, you know, a little 15-minute broadcast. Yeah, I mean, nothing, can you imagine? Three television, big. three years yeah. old. Yeah. And, and Louis B. Manor was still probably the highest-paid executive. Yeah, and I, I, I honestly don't think they were just, you know, the execs then were just beginning to realize that television might catch say, on yeah. and be a threat. He even says it in the in the show, you know, you'll see it on it's your not television the, screens. Yeah. So you'll see the news 
real come up. And he even talks about television being in existence. And and and, and she references it in the very famous quote, which right. Do, do we not, have, are we going to use that clipper? We do we? not have that, but it's, but she it's, says, um, "What is it? It's not." I, I was big. It was the pictures that got smaller. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, they're making something a lot of quotes when you used to be big. I'm, I'm still big. It's just the pictures yeah, that got smaller. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a it's an aging actress that and and the arc of this story is just. Completely spellbinding and engaging every step of the way. But before so beautifully shot, we continue forward. Let's remind all that these films must uh, pass a, a gauntlet of rules, regulations, assessments, and judgments, and uh, it's nothing gets by. Everything has to pass every test, and these are the film guys' rules, and they go. Well, the Sunset Boulevard. Creates the world that it exists in. And it wholly sustains that world. Regardless, it changes its society. Sunset Boulevard retains its meaning and entertainment value. And Sunset Boulevard will never be placed in any kind of preferential or numerical order. It is perfect in its own scale. This one is right up there. No question about it. So if you would, it it is beautiful, pretty to look at. And in this this little stretch of black and white films, I, I have really, I begin to just, when I see color pictures, it just... Doesn't even do it for me anymore. <laughs> black and white is so Because almost all the shows beautiful. we're doing in this in this segment, in this, segment, in this white. series of uh, filming perfect, we have gone black and white. Black and white, we lost our color. But it, it is it's just beautiful to look at in every way. And uh, George, if you would tell us a synopsis of uh, of what we're looking at in this film. Well, the story concerns a screenwriter, uh, kind of a, a hapless screenwriter named Joe Gillis, who is actually from. Dayton, Ohio. Yeah! And he goes out to Hollywood and he's One of the reasons why it's my favorite. (laughs) (laughs) And he's having no luck in his job. He's on the verge of losing his car. And uh, to hide from the the, uh, repossession men, he pulls into a driveway. They're like uh, in hot pursuit. They're in hot pursuit. He he just pulls into a driveway of a house and, and tries to hide out. And makes his way up to the house when he realizes it's like some big mansion. And he's met at the door by this very austere German butler who tells him to come in and and he meets the owner of the house this old silent movie actress norma desmond who is played by gloria swanson she's not really who actually old. is an old well yeah, old and she's in like, her you know, 50s late mid late she's 50s. not but the she starlet actually, that she was right, right. she's, she's, she's not actually quite beautiful mm-hmm. in this but she, she had, looks had more attractive to me every time i watch this movie because <laughs> You know, she. I'm pretty soon I'm going to be older than her. So, <laughs> so for you, it just adds. Well, value nowadays every you got to look at her and say they wouldn't consider her washed up because there's so many. Well, how women many? How many beautiful into... actresses are there now who are, are over fifty and yeah, just, just keep punching them out? And... Which makes to actually a point that's brought up in this movie. Maybe it's different now, but it was. It wasn't then. That so here he meets this. Let's just call her old movie actress mm-hmm. who Silent is movie actually actress. played by. An actual, real life former silent movie actress. Silent movie actress. Yes. So right away, and, and if you know this, it adds depth. But even if you don't, it's still a good story, as you right. mentioned. Well, and to add, but the, how? What a great mirror reflecting a mirror reflecting a mirror. Oh yeah, and and Gloria Swanson. I mean, Wilder went you know, originally for some other people to play Norma, supposedly, uh, but. I don't think any of them would have been half as good as, as Swanson because I think she really felt this character. I mean, she lives this character. I mean, she went on for another geez, 30-some years after this and became quite venerable and did a lot of, you know, made appearances at the Ohio Theater and and touted, you know, worked and did interviews. You know, so she was not a Norma Desmond, which I think she made her kind of comfortable playing this. And she just plays it to the nines. She just... Obviously, having the time of her life playing this complete lunatic, 
And to add to the the sort of the weirdness of it, the German butler is played by Eric von Stroheim. And as the story progresses, you find out that he, his name in the movie is Max von Meierling, was a silent film director who kind of his career dried up completely and that one of his stars was Norma Desmond, Gloria Swanson. And of course, von Stroheim directed Gloria Swanson in a notorious film called Queen Kelly that was never finished because she fired him from it. And yet it's on the movie. You can see it. They're watching it. When she watches in a dark room her glory days, she watches that very picture. They watch some scenes from Queen Kelly. And Eric von Stroheim is running the projector. (laughs) It's so crazy. And I didn't even know that the first time. And it's just, I'm so pleased for all this inside because this is one of those, like a a faceted diamond that everywhere you turn it, everywhere you look, it just is more and more and more valuable. Well, it just has those wonderful uh, Billy Wilder and I.L. Diamond touches because, you know, the reason that he's there is, oh, excuse me, not I.L. Diamond. It's I'm bracket, so sorry. Bracket. I'm so sorry. It's Charles The ghost Brack. of Billy I said, Wilder you know, I said Diamond. I, I think that I said, it's... I think that, that threw me Charles off. I'm sorry. Brackett. Charles Brackett. <laughs> and um, because the reason that Gillis is invited into the house is they think that he's the undertaker who is going to take care of her beloved monkey who has died. How many famous people keep monkeys? Well, you know, we have a clip from the beginning of this picture, and we should play that because that right. kind of spells out. Oh, but let's say before before you play yeah. it, where this comes from, it's such an unusual beginning for a movie because Joe Gillis, who is the main character in the movie, is dead at the beginning of the movie and floating face down in a swimming pool. And so this little opening clip is the late Joe Gillis <laughs> telling us about what we are going to see. Yes, this is Sunset Boulevard, Los Angeles, California. It's about five o'clock in the morning. That's the homicide squad, complete with detectives and newspaper men. A murder has been reported from one of those great big houses in the 10,000 block. You'll read about it in the late editions, I'm sure. You'll get it over your radio and see it on television. Because an old-time star is involved one of the biggest. But before you hear it all distorted and blown out of proportion, before those Hollywood columnists get their hands on it, maybe you'd like to hear the facts, the whole truth. If so, you've come to the right party. You see, the body of a young man was found floating in the pool of her mansion, with two shots in his back and one in his stomach. Nobody important, really. Just a movie writer with a couple of B pictures to his credit. The poor dope. He always wanted a pool. Well, in the end, he got himself a pool. Only the price turned out to be a little high. Let's go back about six months and find the day when it all started. Tid. (laughs) (laughs) And indeed. So then, so what we... Well, Gillis... It sort of inviggles himself into Norma's life, uh, basically just to use her. I mean, for he one, sees an as opportunity. A, he's an opportunist. Oh. He sees a way to hide out, hide from the, hide his car in the garage. And she's got this movie. She wants to make this big comeback. And so he's going to help her write the script, which finds out he's a screenwriter. And of course, one of the things he has to do, being an opportunist and shame, shameless at that, is he sort of feigns that he is in love with her. And there's like enough kind of creepy affair. Um, <laughs> they go to Paramount. They meet DeMille. DeMille's just kind of like, oh, it's so great to see you. Bye, you know. 
And as the story progresses, as he travels outside of Norma's world a couple times, he meets uh, this young woman, played by Nancy Olsen, whom he does fall in love with. Beautiful, wholesome, Olsen. Right, and who wants you know wants him to get away from this. And, and finally, when, I mean, it just goes crazier and crazier, and she tries to kill herself again when he tries to leave, and he's had it. You know, and he heads out of the house and things happen, which I won't go into because that's the end of the film. Uh-huh. So no name. spoilers here, but... No, just to say that the adventures that he has within this insane world of hers are truly astonishing and just the most one of the most cynical views of Hollywood and how Hollywood basically, again, chews up and spits out these people. We're talking about the 1950 classic film and perfect film, Sunset Boulevard, that um, is a great story about movies and also just littered with real characters. Cecil B. Mill actually plays himself in this, as do, there's a a scene where she's playing cards with everyone from... She's playing cards, Buster Keaton, Keaton. H.B. Warner, and Anna Q. Nilsson, who are all uh, contemporaries of hers, and I believe are referred to somewhat derisively as her waxworks. Yeah. Uh, so when you're looking at this, there's just something in every single corner. And some of the techniques for shooting this movie are uh, well, notable. One of, the, one of the things that people don't realize, you can read all about it, it's all over the place, is they shot a, a, a different beginning for this movie that did not work. It's like him in a morgue, and everybody talks about it all the time. So that monologue was not, instead of him, drowned. It's completely different. He was sitting there with a bunch of corpses talking, and I've never seen it. I'd like to see it. But Right, um, and you can find the actual script pages of that, and all these corpses are sort of discussing yeah. how they died. But with what other. they did is they the went out and they left. reshot this beginning and they tried with a great amount of difficulty to shoot him in the pool. And all they did was slide a mirror underneath him and shoot into that mirror. The camera was on the side of the pool and they shot into the mirror and they got this really weird image of him floating, which most of the dialogue that you just heard goes over. Uh, and that is just to show you how one piece of film can change the direction of a movie that simple image is a lot of people have credited by turning this movie completely around from like being something that was silly that came off silly to something that was really kind of off base on your imagination because of the way the distortion is and everything you just watch it it's just really great and it was done with a simple mirror. Instead of building a box and put the well, camera tried, in the bottom they, of I it. I understand they tried to do some underwater photography, and that's always very expensive. But just that simple little technique, now it's, it seems simple, but that's like when uh, you see all the great ones doing things. It looks easy because Billy Water by that time was really awfully good at his craft and he was proving it every day at paramount and he was part of the writers brigade like john houston and all those guys the writers were taking over paramount at this time and he was one of them and And billy wilder has just a rich vibrant tale of his own oh yeah i mean we have we've done uh, yeah we did you know uh double indemnity indemnity. which, which was his charge to the top uh and then this is an expensive film but you know if you watch this movie you're gonna see that even the people you want him to be with, like Betty Schaefer, well, she's in love with the same crap he is. The mm. phony backlots, the, the, the crazy streets that go nowhere, and she's talking <laughs> about how romantic it is. And and, and you, you're pulling for, you know, come on, you want to be with Betty. You don't want to be with that old girl, you know. Mm-hmm. But she's in love with the same exploitation crap that he's he wants to be a part of and then it becomes so calloused and shallow that he fits right into the movie uh, business it's just that the wrong error of the movie business because the woman that he's grooming to be a star again is long gone the train is long gone and uh, that station a long time ago 
he's he's always trying to to write pictures, but he never makes it back to Ohio, which is. You know, we're supposed to think that Ohio is supposed to save him. You know, that's his right. In fact, he even he even mentions that at one point. There's right at the beginning when he's about ready to throw in the towel, and he's driving along. And again, there's, yeah, there's quite some... a this 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 inner interior monologue going on, and he talks about that. As I drove back towards town, I took inventory of my prospects. They now added up to exactly zero. Apparently, I just didn't have what it takes. And the time had come to wrap up the whole Hollywood deal and go home. Maybe if I hawked all my junk, there'd be enough for a bus ticket back to Ohio. Back to that $35 a week job behind the copy desk of the Dayton Evening Post, if it was still open. Back to the smirking delight of the whole office. All right, you wise guys, why don't you go out and take a crack at Hollywood? Maybe you think that you could make... Uh-oh. On the verge of something. Yeah. That's where they're chasing <laughs> That's where the, the, the yeah, the repo guys see him in his car. Yeah, of course, William Holden is like one of those actors that's not only blessed with incredibly good looks and talent, he also has a great speaking voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which identifies him through the ages. You know, that's that's how people were identified. A lot of great actors we, we talked about before, like Gable. And um, uh, that's what kind of sets you apart is your great speaking voice in motion pictures. Ironic. And he's kind of got a kind of a smirk in his voice. It's a scene. nice smirk, and, and I just get a deep <laughs> tickle every time I hear him say Dayton. And he, he still obviously it. has a lot of appeal because Nikki's sitting there going, "He's a handsome I, man. He's a good-looking man." Well, just, and it, it, it. I don't know if we've mentioned this the last time we talked about Billy Water, but but for some reason there are several films where he uses Ohio. Yeah. Uh, the biggest one, I think, is The Fortune Cookie, yeah, that's which Cleveland. takes place in Cleveland. Is he from Ohio? No. He's from Germany. <laughs> I knew that. No, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't but I, I believe there's at least one other film where he, he references Ohio. Is it, he didn't do The Out of Towners, right? Was, no. Okay. But I know that's those guys are from Ohio. Yeah, they're from <laughs> Ohio movie. also. It's a funny movie. <laughs> so nice images, really engaging tale. And, and uh, am I right in thinking that he kind of... Uh, made a few people mad because he was sort of so starkly well, the, realistic. I had heard about that the, when he was writing this picture, the minute he came on to the aspect that it was he, that Joe Gillis was a gigolo, hence the Gillis, that <gasps> he took off and he became the steamroller of a writer with Brackett. And uh, eventually, him and Brackett bumped heads and they just couldn't work anymore. And Brackett is he's the writer. He's um, the other writer. And, oh, and okay. I.L. Diamond that. George mentioned became his partner, mm-hmm. uh, like on I think his Fortune Cookie wrote that Fortune one. Cookie, and I think yeah. uh, something like it hot. But when he like when it. he had the angle of a gigolo, they said that he could not be stopped. He was he was on the way <laughs> of writing this motion picture. He knew where he was going because, of course, he related to it. I guess you know. So nineteen fifty and well, and obviously someone liked him because I mean he made the film for Paramount, and Paramount actually allows him to use the name and the lot. And the you know the image of Paramount in the film. Well, that was uh, before without, they saw. It. <laughs> yeah, well, could have been you know because even even like when you see like Jerry Lewis shooting stuff at Paramount, he changes the name to Paramutual because that's also a joke. But um, but yeah, I mean Paramount obviously saw something in this, and it was a, it was a big success. It was a huge success when it came out. I think it set a record for like 
non-movie season box uh, office. You know, now they made a Broadway show of it, and um, at the horror of all horrors, they're taking movies and turning them into Broadway shows. It used to be the other way around, you know. <laughs> but now they got to do it that way, and it just keeps going. I see it come up on TCM quite a bit, and mm-hmm. I can't keep my eyes off of it, of course. Um, because it's just all the tour de force of acting. And, and plus, it's also a sad reminder sometimes of the aspects of the business that I'm in and how it works. See, see um, background of it. Yeah, it's just here you're pulling for this guy and he just gets tossed into the volcano for all of us for entertainment value. And I can add an interesting sidelight about this film that sort of involves my place of work. Um, a few years ago, Paramount was getting ready to do a major restoration of it because his 50th anniversary was coming up. And they knew or discovered that we had an original 1950 print of the film that Paramount had supplied to the library for copyright purposes. And it turned out they wanted to borrow this print from us because it was the only known original era print of this film. And they knew that meant that it looked as Billy Wilder wanted it to look. So they wanted to borrow it, not to copy, for not for for reference. For, for reference to to get everything the right, you know, the right lightness and darkness, and making sure that it looked exactly the way it was supposed well, to. Well, that's nice that they cared so, so much to. Well, we made true. them jump through hoops to get it, but <laughs> Why? Uh, uh, well, because you know, because it was a, it was one of a because kind. Because we print. could, because we could, yes. Well, no, I mean, it makes sense that you take because every, we'd hung every on to precaution. It. To we'd it. hung on to it for fifty years. You think that was something? <laughs> and when when George and I were in college. When we made our little movies, we took them over to the Library of Congress for storage, and we put them on top of Billy Wilder's cans. That's right. Know, I love that. In negative cans. So I, I think it was double indemnity, little... or I know it, it would have been double indemnity. And we used to sit the, our, our film on to, for storage on top of his cut negative <laughs> cans. Well, I am not superstitious or believe in hocus pocus of any kind, but yeah. I think that was probably a good idea. Well, we thought I it was like really that cool, idea. you know, being able to set our our little college movies on his film cans. Close enough to ever get to that. We're talking about <laughs> Sunset Boulevard, a classic film within a film, and just. Populated at every turn with notable people who, um, Jack Webb even in this. Jack Webb playing a yeah, yeah, small character. Yeah, he doesn't use that staccato kind of voice. This is the city, you know, he doesn't use that. But he's cool in this movie. He's really good. Yeah. And oh, before I, before I forget again, one of the, the greatest uh, composers of the era, the Hollywood era, Franz Waxman. Franz Waxman. Did the incredible music score you heard a little bit of at the beginning. Uh, that just kind of rolls along with it is very dark and kind of smoky, and uh, and near the end at one point when when they are filming Norma coming down the stairs and yeah. she's completely mad, uh, <laughs> he uses the opening notes of the Paramount newsreel theme as they are filming her coming down. Just sort of an interesting little little musical joke. And just so we know uh, that you know the connection between comedy and tragedy here we have a little piece at the end where he's leaving her which we brings us full circle to the front of the movies that's um, right the rest of the jewelry's in the top drawer it's yours joe i gave it to you and i take it in a second only it's a little too dressy for sitting behind the copy desk in dayton ohio these are nothing you can have anything you want what is it you want money norma you'd be throwing it away i don't qualify for the job not anymore. You can't go. Max, Max! I can't face life without you. And you know I'm not afraid to die. It's between you and yourself. You think I made that up about the gun, don't you? All right. 
Now, I suppose you don't think I have the courage. Oh, sure, if it would make a good scene. You don't care, do you? But hundreds of thousands of people will care. Oh, wake up, Norma. You'd be killing yourself to an empty house. The audience left 20 years ago. Now face it. That's a lie! They still want me. No, they don't. What about the studio? What about DeMille? He was trying to spare your feelings. The studio only wanted to rent your car. Wanted what? DeMille didn't have the heart to tell you. None of us has had the heart. That's a lie. They want me. I get letters every day. You tell her, Max. Come on, do her that favor. Tell her there isn't going to be any picture. There aren't any fan letters except the ones you write. That isn't true. Max! Madame is the greatest star of them all. <laughs> Loyal. You know, when you, watch, uh, when you watch this movie and anything by Billy Water, it's always so sharply written. There's some beautiful, just... Just hardly any director in his world, world can do some of the stuff that Billy does. In fact, in where he's sitting there typing away, and she comes over and she pulls stuff out of the trash, and he goes, "He says, well, that's where we take you to the slave market." And she goes, "Put it back." <laughs> just, just, just the fact he's typing there. Well, we're taking you to the slave market there, and it's just this whole thing is just absolutely hilarious, and it, it just it's everything's really funny but it's always at somebody else's expense you know that's interesting that the first time i saw it many many years ago i just thought wow i mean it was engaging but it just seemed so dark and then learning and knowing what i know now it's a dark comedy mm -hmm. it, it is, is. Dark, dark comedy. which is poison if you're trying to sell your movie out there folks that's don't right. ever call it dark comedy right you no, no. Will it's lose. no a romantic comedy no it's a, a, a yeah. historical comedy it's yeah. Well, one of the last things I want to put in here, just to show the longevity of this film and how important it is, not just as a film, but just to our, our society and to our American structure and whatever you want to call it, <laughs> is on the, the great Carol Burnett show, one of her, her reoccurring characters was a sort of a Norman Desmond character, Norma Desmond character, and uh, Harvey Corman playing Max, her, her butler valet. And it was taken directly from Sunset Boulevard. And she did the, the Gloria Swanson thing with the big eyes and everything, just wonderfully. And they weren't always uh, hysterically funny. There were a few of those that were actually quite uh, quite melancholy, Aww. for even for Carol Burnett's show, but were just incredible. Just, again, coming back and, you know, how important this this character was and is. To, to our national... And you have to imagine safety. that people that were seeing that were familiar oh, yeah. with the reference. They knew... It was, I mean, it was only you know, 10, 15, maybe as many as 20 years after the film came out. So, you know, Sons of Boulevard has, is one of those great classic films that has never been out of sight. It has uh, always been around and always and it's, will be. it's a timeless story of entertainment and exploitation of people. <laughs> people are always going to can't get enough of that. That's right. That's the two big things in Hollywood, <laughs> entertainment and exploitation. <laughs> yeah. Can't this have one without the other. That's right. Got it in <laughs> And it doesn't come in a foil pouch either. You just can't mix it with water. That's right. <laughs> it's a movie well done and well worth watching. And uh, we've well spent a half an hour talking about it, gentlemen. Uh, it's a Sunset Boulevard 1950 classic. Uh, we all three in perfect accord. The rules just... <laughs> We proved what can it. We say? Just, just uh, it's all, it's all right here. Sustains, creates, and uh, relevance. I'll bet you in a hundred years, people will look back, and there won't be anything dated. I mean, you'll understand that it's from a period, but it will just sing right through. Yeah. people will dig up all these artifacts and say, "What? <laughs> they play basketball all the time." <laughs> Jaden Anderson, thank you for being here. Thank you very much. George Willeman, always a pleasure. Yes.
Thank you for listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. Please keep an ear out for new episodes of Filmically Perfect, coming very soon to iTunes and hosted on our website, www.perfectmovie.net. See you, please.